Very good morning to all of you and uh, glad to see you all in person and also online as we come to listen to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will open up our minds, our ears, our minds and our hearts. Help us, Lord, to listen with the right attitude. I pray also that I will speak and preach according to what you want. May the words that come out be from you. May it uh, take root and to do the work that you want it to do. Lord, guide us during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today we are looking at the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's uh, quite, a, quite a popular, quite a famous parable. But there's something about this parable there's something about this parable that makes it quite special. Now, you know how many uh, gospels, many, many gospel stories, they tend to have the same multiple accounts uh, across different gospels. So, for example, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as the synoptic gospels, they tend to share a lot of stories and accounts. Well, this particular parable for today can only found in the Gospel of Matthew, and that makes it a bit special. It's not found in, in any other Gospel. And the Gospel of Matthew was written mainly to a Jewish audience, okay? So there's, uh, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's lots of Old Testament scriptures that are quoted. Uh, for example, Jesus' genealogy doesn't go all the way back to Adam. It goes only back to Abraham to, to trace the, the Jewish uh, lineage. And, and so... Uh, and many other evidences. So the Gospel of Matthew, written mainly to the Jews. Sorry, before I continue, am I cutting in and out? I'm just going to use this. Check. Okay. Okay, yeah. So as I was saying... Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, written mainly to the Jews. And uh, hang on to that fact, okay? As we go through today's uh, passage, hang on to that fact that the Gospel of Matthew, written mainly to Jews. Another feature of the Gospel of Matthew is that it's, the, the Gospel of Matthew tends to use these words, the kingdom of heaven. And basically, it can be seen as the same thing as the kingdom of God in other Gospels. So Jesus goes around preaching the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it's known as the kingdom of heaven. Uh, why that is, there's some debate about whether it's because uh, so as to not offend the Jewish hearers. Instead of using the word God, they use the word heaven. But essentially, it means the same thing. Okay, The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. So this parable is not describing heaven as in uh, what happens after you die, that concept of heaven, it is talking about the kingdom of God. And we've looked at this concept quite a few times this year. It's describing the worldview of God's spiritual reign in the heart of every person who submits to his authority as king. So if God is your king, you submit to him as king, the kingdom of God is upon you, okay? And uh, in your heart. And so, Jesus is saying in today's passage that the kingdom of God is like this, 
okay? And, and he goes on into the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Now, if you look at verse 1 of today's passage, okay, so those of you who are here and also at home, please take out your Bibles. Uh, your, your, if it's on your phone, uh, ignore everything else. Just leave your Bible app open, okay? Don't go and, and multitask to Facebook or whatever. Uh, those of you who have physical Bibles, take it out, flip. Uh, we'll be referring a bit, okay? So turn to Matthew chapter 20, okay? Matthew chapter 20. Okay, so look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 20. Now, it begins with this word, for, okay? F-O-R, for. And this is a very important word because we teach time and time again that context is incredibly important for any Bible verse or passage. So we need to always look at the original context of whatever verse or whatever passage that we are looking at. We need to pay attention to what comes before. We need to pay attention to what comes after so we can have a, a better understanding of what that particular passage or that verse is actually saying. So it's especially important, so context is already important, but it's especially important when we see the passage begin with a conjunction. Okay, a conjunction is a connecting word, right? Uh, so words like but, or yet, or for, okay? So when you see the, the passages begin with this word, it is continuing a thought from the previous, whatever is earlier, okay? From the previous sentence. So if you look at what's before, what comes before chap uh, Matthew chapter 20, what comes before Matthew chapter 20? Matthew chapter 19, right? So you can see that today's parable actually is continuing a, a, a theme or a topic that is found in Matthew chapter, 20, uh, chapter 19. And so in Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 15, Jesus tells the disciples, let the little children come to me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, right? Uh, so there's the, the people brought children, come, bless, uh, bless my children and all that. And the disciples are trying to turn them away. Don't bother our teacher. So Jesus says, let them come to me. Kingdom of heaven belongs to even these little children, right? So that is already part of our context for today. Now, on top of that, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 30, so immediately after the little children bit, is this story of the rich young ruler and how he, was, uh, he, he had kept all the laws since his childhood, but he was not willing to give up his great wealth to follow Jesus. Okay, that, that story. Okay, so little children, rich young ruler. Within the rich young ruler story, in verse 27, Peter says, after uh, responding to how the, the rich young ruler uh, turned away and left dejected, Peter tells Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Okay. And then the last verse just before today's passage, verse 30 says, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Okay, so keep all this in mind as we look at today's passage. The, the little children uh, being able to enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, the rich young ruler who was not able to enter because uh, despite all his, his uh, wealth and his um, keeping all the laws, and 
Peter saying, we have left everything to follow you. What, what is there for us? And verse 30, many who are first will be last, many who are last will be first. Okay, keep all this in mind. Now, like I mentioned before, this parable of the workers of the vineyard, quite a popular parable. So there are, there are a, a few popular ways to interpret this parable. Okay? And one, probably the most common one that we usually think about, is that God is the landowner, uh, the wage is salvation, and the first workers, those, those who were hired first, are those who became Christian first, and then the later workers are those who became Christian later in life. Okay, so this parable is used to, to uh, uh, usually focus on the whole deathbed conversion thing, right? When people become Christians just before they die, they receive the same reward as those who became Christians much earlier. Okay, so that's one interpretation. The other popular interpretation is that God is the landowner, uh, the wage is salvation, and the first workers are the Jews, and then the later workers are the Gentiles. Uh, especially since Matthew is written to a, a primarily Jewish audience, right? So that this interpretation says that uh, the Jews who were God's chosen people first, uh, now they are now now God is accepting the Gentiles into His kingdom as well, and they are on equal spiritual footing. Okay, so these are the the, the common popular interpretations of this parable, but. I suspect that this parable doesn't have to be read as a direct allegory. Okay, an allegory is uh, when you tell a story and then each character in the story actually represents a real thing. Okay, so for example, the, the parable of the sower, right? Uh, this farmer went and sowed the seeds, the seeds scattered on this ground, that ground, this ground, that ground. Uh, the seed represents this, the ground represents this, this ground represents that, right? That's an allegory. Rather, I, I think that today's parable is simply a story that has a point or several points, okay? So it doesn't have to be an exact character-for-character character allegory. And so my, my take on this is that this parable is simply emphasizing the same truth as the one that is found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30 that we saw earlier, Right, that this verse that comes just before today's passage, remember, original Bible, no chapters, no verses. So this would have been the sentence just before today's passage. And verse 30 says, many who are first will be last, many who are last will be first. And today's passage uh, in, in verse 16 has almost the exact same words in chapter 20, verse 16. So the last will be first and the first will be last. So it's a sandwich, okay? And so that is the point of this parable. So not, not so much about all the deathbed and the Jews and Gentiles, but that God's kingdom very often seems like an upside-down kingdom, okay? And so that's the big idea for today along these lines. God's kingdom is very different from what we typically expect, okay? So if you forget... Everything that I say, this is the one thing you remember. God's kingdom, how uh, things work within the sphere of God's rule, is very different from what we usually expect in this world. Now today I want to highlight two differences between God's kingdom and the typical expectations of this world. 
And the first area of difference is this area of justice and fairness. I'm sure many of us can empathize with the, you know, the workers who were hired first. They did all the hard work. They bought the heat of the sun. They, they worked for long hours. And why are they getting paid the same as those who only work for one hour, who worked in the evening? Okay, so the sun has gone down. They, they come, they do a little bit of work. Oh, they get the same pay, right? Not fair. <laughs> if, you, if you read this naturally, you told this story to anybody, they will say, yeah, th- those who were hired first are probably right to say that it doesn't seem fair. If there were people in the same situation in a workplace, you know, they would complain to HR, right? This person whom you hired later did less work than me. Uh, why are they getting paid the same? You know, they complain to the boss. Or maybe they'll even air their grievances on social media, which is probably not the wisest thing to do, but that, that's probably what will happen. Or for those who have been through group projects in college, you know, you, you know there's going to be one or two who, you know, or, or even the majority of the group who just slacks and don't do any work. Okay, so maybe the text is a bit small, but I read this for you. Huh? In every group project, there is one person who disappears at the very beginning and doesn't show up again until the end. Uh, there's another person who says he's going to help, but he doesn't. There's another person who has no idea what's going on the whole time. And then there's the person who does 99% of the work. Right? So, uh, if you've been in a group project, you know, the, the achiever has to pick up the dead weight, carry the rest of the group, work extra hard to give them all a good grade. How many of you have been in that situation before? God, not. Honestly, uh, God, God, a few, right? I'm sure online also got. I have also been in that situation. Uh, if you've been in that situation, I sincerely hope that you were the one doing the work, huh? not the one slacking. But you know, that's how it feels. It's so unfair. But we can't jump to the same conclusion as those who were hired first in this parable because there are a few issues, a few differences between that, that parable's context and our situation today. Firstly, the landowner goes to the marketplace to hire workers every few hours, okay? And these were day laborers, okay? So they weren't employed full-time, they weren't drawing a salary, uh, they, they depended on people hiring them for work, okay? And they'll work for a day, and day by day, they will get work. And so when the landowner saw them standing around in the marketplace doing nothing, it doesn't mean they were lepaking. Uh. It doesn't mean that they were just relaxing, you know, playing chess, doing window shopping, uh, nothing better to do. That's why they're hanging out in the marketplace. No, they were there waiting for work. Okay? They were in the marketplace because that's where people go to hire laborers. And they, they were essentially you know, waiting for employment. Okay? They were unemployed, waiting for employment. If they didn't find work, they wouldn't get paid. Possibly they wouldn't have, they wouldn't be able to feed their family for that evening at the end of the day. Okay, so getting hired, being paid was a privilege. Okay, it, wa- it wasn't something that was expected and demanded. So, those who were hired first, the denarius that they agreed to work for is the standard pay for one day's worth of labor. So it's a very fair pay, okay? 
Now, let's look closer at why those who were hired first were so discontented, why they grumbled. In verse 8, we see that the landowner tells his foreman, call the, uh, call the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired first and going on to the first, those who were hired first. Uh, we don't know why the landowner wanted it in that order, okay? why he wanted to go reverse, but it expands the story. Because if those who had been hired first had been paid first and sent on their way, they would have been perfectly fine, right? Because they agreed to work for a denarius, okay, which is a silver coin. They agreed to work for a denarius. It's fair pay for their day's, wait, uh, their day's work. They would have took, taken it, uh, happily gone on their way. No discontent, no grumbling. End of story. But no, because they saw how those who were hired last got one denarius as well, they thought they would receive more. Okay, verse 10. Uh, they were expecting their word to be prorated, like in other words. And so when they received the exact same wage as those who worked less, you know, then they got discontented, they grumbled. And what was the cause of their discontent? It wasn't really about the money that they received. It wasn't about the amount that they received. We see the real cause of their discontent in verse 12. You have made them equal to us. That is the reason they are so discontented. You have made them equal to us. Now, although this isn't the main point of the parable, it's worth noting that the fastest way to discontentment is to compare yourself to others. Uh, that usually triggers envy. And envy is such an ugly thing because it's malicious in nature. It's not just about wanting more for ourselves. It's also about wanting less for others when you make that comparison. And, and so if you dig deep into the root of envy, you will usually find pride. You know, the desire to put yourself above others to be better than others. And so this is the same sentiment that's found in the parable of the prodigal son, if you remember that one, where you, know, you have the, the prodigal son, you have the father, uh, prodigal son leaves, finally comes back, the father, yay, receive uh, with gr great gladness, tropati. The older brother sees all that and grumbles, right? And it's the same sentiment there, how the older brother is just so discontented because of how the father is treating the younger brother. And so for the workers who were hired first, it, what, what they were actually feeling was envy and pride, but it would have been disguised as not fair, right? It would have been disguised as an issue of justice. And so there is no, so coming to the point of this parable, there is no place for envy in God's kingdom. In God's worldview of how uh, people are to be, uh, how they are to act, how they are to feel and all that, there is no place for envy. Not just because envy is sinful, but because we are all undeserving recipients of God's generosity. We'll come to this more later. So, instead of envy, if we feel tempted to be envious, what do we do? We celebrate God's generosity instead as an attitude, uh, as, as an antidote. And so, 
celebrate God's generosity to you. This is called gratitude. When God has been generous to you and you want to celebrate that, that's being thankful. Okay? Don't look around at how others have, uh, how, how you have less than others and grumble. Look at what you do have and be thankful. And you can also celebrate God's generosity to others. This is called, well, being happy for others. The English language doesn't have a, a very good word for this. I uh, don't know whether it's because people who speak English usually aren't happy for others. But uh, basically, just rejoice when others rejoice. No need to compare. Be glad that God has blessed others generously. Uh, when we are unable to celebrate God's generosity towards others out of envy, this implies an accusation. And that accusation is that God is unfair that God is a God of injustice. And we come to this conclusion because of a works-based worldview. When we have this idea and we have this belief and this conviction that everything must be earned, that we can earn God's love, that we can earn His favour, that we can earn His blessings, that we can earn His protection, we can earn His you know, whether he likes us or not. And so this brings us to the second way that God's kingdom is different from the typical expectations of this world. And that is God's grace versus our works. Let's, so we've been looking at this, these workers who were hired first. Let's turn our focus to the workers who were hired last or later. Now, one of the unusual things about this whole parable about how, how uh, the, the hiring and the payment was done is not just the amount that is paid and, and how you know, it doesn't match the amount of work that's done. It is also the order of payment is upside down, right? We expect those who, who were hired first to receive payment first. That is upside down. Now, on top of that, the landowner also interacts with the workers directly. He goes to the marketplace, he hires them, uh, he is involved in the, in the payment. And this is unusual for landowners during that time. Now, back then, if you own land, you are a rich person. You are rich enough to not have to actually go down to the ground and do the work. And so you wouldn't be the one doing the hiring or the firing or the payment or payroll. Right? You would just be going about your business and uh, basically getting the profits. Right? Uh, a bit like today, if you own a company, uh, you're not going to be there doing all the recruitment and, and answering all the phone calls, especially if it's a larger company, right? And so, unusual for the landowner to do all this, especially since he has a foreman to do all this for him. And so, these things show us, it, it highlights how the kingdom of God doesn't fit into what we usually expect that even this landowner would interact directly with the workers. There is, that, uh, there is that connection, that familiarity, that intimacy, uh, not that detachment that we would usually expect in the world. One major area of this upside-down kingdom is the area of God's generous grace. Now, just a, a quick definition of grace, because... Uh, 
I don't think we can take it for granted that we all always understand this word. It's thrown about so much in Christian vocab. You hear in Christian circles, you know, amazing grace, you say grace. Uh, but what does it really mean? Okay, so just a quick definition. Grace is basically God's unmerited or His unearned favour. Okay, something good that God is doing for us not because he is forced to out of obligation or to repay something, but simply because he wants to. Okay, so something good, a blessing, uh, a favor from God, uh, his, his, the fact that he likes us, uh, not because of something that we earn. Okay, so God's unearned favor. And so when we sing Amazing Grace, you know, we, we say grace before we eat, we are saying that we did not do anything to be entitled to God's goodness. We did not do anything to be entitled to His blessings. Even though we may, you know, work with our hands, we, we do not, uh, we, we can't demand God to provide food for us. Okay, so when we say grace, we are thanking God for the food, that He provides for us even though it's not His obligation, all right? Now, reason why I wanted us to be sure that we understood God's grace is because the works-based worldview that I talked about before, about how we earn, how, how we look at, at earning things in this world, this is the default way that we look at the world. You know, the idea that if we worked more, we deserve more, right? And so that's, that's at the root of uh, the, the discontentment of the, the, the workers who were hired first. They expected we work more, we earn more, right? Others work less, they deserve less, right? And so this worldview of works is the default way that we look at this world. Now, ordinarily, yes, uh, uh, Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we should not work hard and, and earn our salary and all that. Uh, but remember, this is a parable of the kingdom of God. Okay? It's not a description of how the world works. Okay, so this is a parable of the kingdom of God, and it doesn't operate the same, world, the same way that the world works. Remember the context of chapter 19, that the kingdom of God belongs even to the little children. Now, the little children are the last people who can earn anything. They cannot work to earn anything because they're kids, right? And even the rich young ruler who had amassed the great wealth, uh, he, he, he even had great moral wealth by supposedly keeping God's commandments since his childhood. Even he could not earn his way into the kingdom of God. And remember, the Gospel of Matthew written primarily to the Jews. Now, the Jews were very much stuck in this idea of works-based righteousness. That how you behave is uh, basically the, the, the defining factor of how righteous you are. But in God's kingdom, we are all in no position to earn anything from Him. The fact that we are forgiven, the fact that we are redeemed, the fact that we are blessed are all purely out of God's grace. 
I like the song that we sang just now about how, um, I don't remember the lyrics exactly, but everything that we receive, everything that we uh, are getting from God is all by His grace, purely by His grace. We are all undeserving recipients of His grace because if we really talk about you know, justice and fairness and what we deserve, we deserve death because of our sin. Uh, we deserve the effects and consequences of our sin and nothing more. Now, one common misconception of grace is that it's not compatible with justice. For example, a single mother is found violating lockdown orders because you know, she's trying to look for food for her newborn child. Okay, so just imagine this situation. Uh, let's say she lives in Slangor, okay? lockdown, cannot go anywhere. Uh, but she goes out to try and earn a little bit of money so that she can feed her child. Okay? She's caught, she's supposed to be fined 1,000 ringgit, right? Because she violated lockdown orders. But maybe the policeman knows her situation. Maybe she's her neighbor, uh, his neighbor or something. Lah. And so he has compassion and he says, never mind, never mind, buggy chance, buggy chance. Don't give you the fine. Right? So this policeman would be exercising grace, but he's not upholding justice according to the law, right? Because the law says you violate lockdown, you're fined a thousand ringgit. But in God's kingdom, justice and grace are not at odds with each other. Why? Because God cannot be unjust. That simply goes against his character. It contradicts who he is. Yet at the same time, his grace to us, sinful people, is real. And that's why Jesus' sacrifice on the cross had to happen. That's why he can't just snap his fingers and magically make our sin disappear. Because justice needed to be done. The price for sin is death. That price had to be paid. Justice demands payment. And so we need to move away from the transactions mindset in our relationship with God. That God's laws and God's teachings are not currency to redeem for blessings, you know, like earning points and a, with your credit card and then you redeem points. Huh? Uh, God's doing what God wants, doing what makes God happy, living a holy life, these are not ways to get what we want from God. They are generous gifts that are given to us to help us to live abundant lives amidst the mess of this sinful world and our own sinful nature. And so God's laws, God's teachings, they are gifts of grace to us. They are not weighty currency that we have to work hard to earn so that we can redeem some blessings or favour from God. Love or gratitude, these are good motives for living holy lives and serving God and serving others. So uh, we, we live holy lives, we don't sin, we uh, serve God, we work hard to serve others, we do it out of love, we do it out of thankfulness. And so be careful if your reasons for doing things like you know, living holy lives or, or serving God or others has something to do with being afraid of punishment because that means you're trying to earn your way out of punishment. 
be careful if it has something to do with expecting something from God because it means you're trying to earn that thing from God. These are indicators of a works-based worldview which the kingdom of God is not like. Okay? So this parable is not teaching salvation by works. Okay, so just to be clear, uh, just because you're workers in the vineyard doesn't mean you need to work for our salvation. This parable is also not encouraging deathbed conversions, like how this is a popular interpretation, right? Uh, don't get me wrong, those who sincerely believe in Jesus, desire to follow Him, repent of their sins at the 11th hour, uh, just before they die, they will be saved. Okay, that is a promise. So all of you who have relatives who may have uh, deathbed conversions, they are saved, okay? Don't get me wrong. But we should not be waiting until the last minute to accept Christ for ourselves. We should not be waiting until the last minute to even share the gospel because, not just because we, we can't predict when we are going to die, it can literally be at any moment, especially now, but also because if we wait until the last minute, that person would be missing out on an abundant life full of joy, meaning, and purpose. I've mentioned before about how abundant life and eternal life begins the moment we accept Jesus, not only after we die. And so if you wait 40 years to share the gospel with somebody, that's 40 years that they could have been living a life of abundance in God's kingdom. Now, this parable is also not advocating cheap grace. Okay, so what is this cheap grace? Although salvation is a gift that is freely given, we cannot forget the price of the gift. We do not have to earn salvation, right? It's just believing in Jesus, repenting of our sins. We don't have to you know, pay with something. But this gift came at a very great cost. We were bought at a price. We just weren't the ones who paid the price. Jesus was the one who paid the price. So we shouldn't take God's grace for granted to carry on persisting in what we know are sinful actions or sinful attitudes and living the, the sinful life. Because becoming a disciple of Jesus doesn't cost us anything, but being a disciple of Jesus will cost us our entire lives. Being a disciple of Jesus means living life according to how Jesus wants, not us. And so we need to embrace the new design that God has for our lives and live according to His ways in His upside-down kingdom. So in conclusion... How the world works isn't always the same way that God's kingdom works. You know, his kingdom is very different from what we typically expect in this world. And so I'd like you to know that God's grace is unearned and offered to all. Okay, we need to continuously dismantle our works-based mindset when it comes to our relationship with Him, when it comes to His kingdom. And would you be confident in God's character? Would you trust Him to be absolutely just and fair, even if the circumstances make you feel otherwise? And do celebrate God's generosity 
Be thankful and rejoice when others rejoice. Let us pray. Lord, we want to thank you for your abundant grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are a God of justice and at the same time a God of grace. And so, Lord, you solve the issues that we cannot solve. Thank you, Lord. Give us, Lord, a heart that is as generous as you are to us. Not only generous to you, but also generous to others. Help us, Lord, to move away from a works-based mindset. Help us to live a life of love and gratitude. May we be continually transformed into the image of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, just a few reflection and discussion questions for us to take note of for the following week. And so the first is, what are some ways that you have heard or thought that God is unfair? Okay, so discuss this with your group. Uh, second question, how do you usually deal with envy? How do you usually deal with envy? Third question, what is one aspect of God's character that you need to trust more? whether it's his goodness or his justice or his uh, ability to provide, what is one aspect of God's character that you need to trust more? Okay, so I leave these questions with you uh, to reflect and ponder over the week.